You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Coming to you from Great American Ballpark, it's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Episode 2 of the Better Off Red Podcast. We cut the ribbon on the podcast last week with the one and only Dimitri Young. And we keep it rolling today with one of the best pitchers in the history of the Reds franchise, Jim Maloney. We have Reds news coming up, but first, here's this week's ear candy from the Chicago five-piece band, 11th Day Dream. From one of the truly great rock and roll albums from 2015, that's the band 11th Day Dream with the song Go Tell It. Their latest LP is entitled Works for Tomorrow, and it's available now on iTunes. Before we get to this week's guest, let's cover some news from around Reds country. The Reds announced on Wednesday that Assistant General Manager Dick Williams has been promoted to the role of Senior Vice President and General Manager and will assume those duties immediately. Walt Jockety will remain the club's president of baseball operations and continue to oversee the department. Williams joined the Reds' baseball operations staff in 2005 and since then has been involved in every aspect of that department. Jockety was quoted in Wednesday's Reds' press release as saying, As is the case with any business, it's critical to have a succession plan in place. Dick has been here for 10 years, he's learned the business, and we are confident he is ready to take on the GM responsibilities. In other news, former Cincinnati Reds outfielder Eddie Milner passed away on Monday. Milner, who played for the Reds from 1980 until 1986, and then again in 1988, was known for his blazing speed and excellent defense. The Columbus native appeared in the 1987 Major League postseason as a member of the San Francisco Giants. In recent years, Milner made multiple appearances at Reds Hall of Fame events and served as a Reds fantasy camp coach in January 2015. Eddie Milner was 60 years old. Join me at the Holy Grail Banks on Tuesday, November 10th, as we begin another season of Better Off Red Baseball Trivia. It will take place immediately following the season premiere of the popular Reds Hot Stove League show, hosted by Marty Brenneman. All of the action begins at 6 p.m., so I hope you'll join us for the Reds Hot Stove League show, followed by Better Off Red Baseball Trivia, Live at the Holy Grail Banks, Tuesday, November 10th. Paul Brooks says, why gave to Nancy? 
Our guest this week threw a 10-inning no-hitter for the Reds in 1965 and a conventional 9-inning no-no in 69. In a game against the Mets at Crosley Field in 1965, he lost a no-hitter in the 11th inning when Johnny Lewis led off the frame with a home run. He won 20 or more games twice, including in 1965 when he went 20-9 and with an 8.1 war and a 2.54 ERA and over 255 innings pitched. He accumulated over 1,600 strikeouts over a 12-year big league career. He's considered one of the best pitchers to ever put on a Reds uniform. This is Jim Maloney. Hi, Jim Maloney. How are you? I'm doing fine, Jamie. How about yourself? I'm doing great. would like to first take a, a opportunity here to say thanks for coming on the Better Off Red podcast. We really appreciate you, you coming on here with us. You're a Reds Hall of Famer and one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, uh, we've met in Reds Fantasy Camp and you're, I see you around the ballpark and every once in a while, and especially in spring training when you come as an instructor with the Reds. And I just wanted to welcome you on, and we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff. How about that? Hey, all right. I'm, I'm glad that uh, you thought of me, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing a few thoughts with you. All right, great. Well, first, my first question for you, Jim, is uh, when I say the name Johnny Lewis – what does what kind of memories does that bring back? Well, that's that's pretty hard to uh, forget about Johnny Lewis. Uh, <laughs> Johnny Lewis was a uh, player for the New York Mets, and uh, the no hit game I had at Crosley Field in 1965, uh, I pitched ten innings of uh, no hit baseball, and and uh, score was zero to zero. And I went out in the top of the 11th inning, and uh, he had a home run off me. So I ended up uh, losing that game, one to nothing. So Johnny Lewis, uh, uh, in fact, I'm asked about Johnny Lewis a lot of times when I go around the country uh, doing certain things. I, I saw that, uh, you know, he's he's had some success against you in the past. And uh, did you ever get a chance to really, did, did you know Johnny at all? No. I didn't. Uh, I didn't know him. I just knew him as uh, you know a, a player for the Mets, and uh, you know we didn't uh, we didn't fraternize too much in those days like they do today. So the only you know the players that I knew were you know teammates, and uh, they got traded maybe to another team or something. But uh, we uh, I didn't know a lot about a lot of the players personally. I didn't want anybody to know on the opposition what kind of a person I was. I was uh, uh, trying to make a living uh, pitching, and uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, was, sometimes I get you get a hit, you get on first base, and I can remember several first basemen, Dick Stewart, and some of those guys, they want to start a conversation with you, and uh, I, would never, I would never acknowledge even, that I was even listening to them. I was looking at the box score of that game that you were talking about, which was, I mean, incredible that you pitched, you know, not only a, a nine-inning no-hitter, but you went into the 10th inning, or you went into the 11th inning with a no-hitter. Um, that was in June of 65. Uh, you only gave up two hits that game. Do you remember who the other hit was was off of? I, I think it was uh, Roy McMillan. He hit a, a little uh, 
up or over my head or something. It was an infield hit, I believe. That's exactly right. Roy McMillan, former Red shortstop, you had 18 strikeouts that game. How many pitches do you think you threw? I threw a lot. I don't know exactly how many I threw on that day, but, uh, you know, two months later, I was in the same situation as I was at Crosley Field. I was sitting on the bench uh, in Ridley Field in Chicago, and I'm sitting there on the bench, and I'm looking at the uh, scoreboard. After nine innings, I've got another no-hitter going, and the score is 0-0. Zero zero. And a lot of things go through your mind, you know, like, you know, it'd be nice to pitch a no-hitter and win. And, uh, you know, it so happened that the first no-hitter, uh, I got beat by Johnny Lewis, as you said. And uh, sitting there on the bench looking out, I've just pitched nine innings against the Cubs and have given up no hits. And uh, I got to go out, you know, I'm thinking, if this happens to me again, uh, I might be the only pitcher in the history of baseball that would throw two extra inning no-hitters and get beat both in both games. But uh, as it turned out, I was in the on-deck circle, and Leo Cardenas was our shortstop. And uh, we were hitting in the top of the 10th inning, and I think there was one out. And he hit a ball and went right down the foul line and hit the foul pole down the left field line at Wrigley. And uh, it was six inches to the left. It was foul. And it just hit the tick, the foul pole. So he got a home run. And then I went out in the uh, bottom of the 10th inning, and I got him out with no hits. And so in a matter of a two-month period there, I had thrown two no, uh, 10-inning no-hitters, and uh, I'd won one, and I'd lost one. And in the Chicago game, I know for a fact that I threw 187 pitches. So I would imagine that I was pretty close to the same thing at the Mets deal with all the strikeouts. You don't, uh, you know, it's it's funny that you say that 180 some odd pitches. If if a pitcher did that today, I think before the game was even over, the manager would be fired. <laughs> you know, that's sad. Uh, that's my opinion. I I, uh, I I think that you know these uh, programs, uh, these pitchers. Uh, you know, we get all the giant games, and it's the same thing. They keep talking about the people that are announcing the game. As soon as they have 87, 88 pitches, they start bringing that up. Now, you can listen to it during the series playoffs and stuff and all that kind of stuff. They start mentioning it, and it's usually around the fifth inning. It all depends if the guy strikes out a few more, he'll reach that point a little bit earlier. But so many times a pitcher has a lead in a ball game, and he gets that fifth inning, and he gets to 100 pitches, and or in the fourth inning, it gets right close to 100 pitches. He got to go out fifth inning, and he has to complete that fifth inning to get a, to be uh, eligible to win that ball game if he's ahead. And he goes back out there, and he he has a mental thing. They have mental things where they just they can't they can't finish. They get to 100 pitches, and that's it. They're all programmed. You know, all these pitchers are programmed just to throw 100 pitches, and. Uh, I don't know. I I can't. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't see what that's all about, really. I mean, it's. Uh, uh, they say they protect their arms and everything, but it seems like to me they got more Tommy John surgeries before than they ever had. Uh, I know when I played, they didn't know what Tommy John surgery was until Tommy John had the surgery, and then there. You know, there was a few guys after that, but now it seems like these pitchers, even though they're monitored real close, 
that they're having so much arm trouble that uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I can't tell you. I'm not a medical doctor or, or whatever it is, but I, I don't think it's by not throwing 100 pitches or five innings or whatever comes first. 100 pitches, you were just warming up, right? Yeah, I, went in, I was just broke into a sweat. <laughs> now, you talked about the two, if you include that 11-inning um you know, the game in which you got defeated by the Mets on Johnny Lewis's homer. Uh, you talked about that when you talked about the 10 inning, no hitter that you pitched. Um, a lot of people don't realize that you threw another no hitter. You threw a, a conventional nine inning, no hitter as well. Yeah. And, uh, uh, in April of, uh, 1969, I had, uh, threw a no hitter against, uh, the Houston Astros. And that was in hit Crosley field. And, and uh, I got I got real good uh, run support. I think we got ten runs, and uh, so that was uh, sort of you might say a walk in the park. But uh, you know, there's so much luck involved. Uh, no hitters. Uh, you know, I, I I remember my roommate Johnny Edwards. He just got traded to Houston, and uh, he was hitting against me. You know, we were playing against each other at that time, and uh, we were. He was like a big brother to me. Uh, he was a couple years older, and uh, he caught my first no hitter and he caught all the, we came up in the minor leagues together and, uh, you know, he was a real good buddy. But anyway, th- that during that game, he was catching and, uh, there hadn't been anybody hit a ball that was resembled a hit. And, and he came up, I don't know, fifth or sixth inning and something. And I threw a ball inside and he hit it off the fist and he hit a sort of a looper over shortstop. And, uh, you know, when you see it go, you think, well, that's, you know, that's in there. It's going to be a hit. It's going to fall for a hit. And Daryl Cheney went back and dove and made some kind of a laid-out catch and uh, put it out. And that so that, that uh, helped preserve the no-hitter for that day. I remember that. Wow, that's uh, that's incredible. And let me ask you, Jim, Was were no-hitters kind of like as far as the atmosphere and the tension – was it uh was it as prevalent then as it is now? I mean, like now, you know, we get alerts on our telephones when there's a guy in the fifth inning with a no hitter, uh, and 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 guys don't sit next to the pitcher on the bench or they don't talk to him in the dugout. Uh, was it the same kind of like that back then? Yeah, it was. Uh, as far as that part of it is, uh, you know, when you know all the players know, you know, you got a no hitter fifth or sixth inning and. Uh, you know, they sort of leave you alone. Uh, you know, it, they left me alone anyway. You know, during a game, I pitched my game, and I didn't want to be bothered. I was concentrating on, the, you know, what I needed to do, who was going to come up in the next inning, and how I needed to do what I needed to do to get that first hitter out. And um, so that that's that's never changed. But the, the media thing, you know, as you well know, uh, with all the, uh, you know, the television and the, the, the social media and all that kind of stuff, and people – right away you know a guy has a no hitter going and comes over the screen and that stuff in those days you know a guy would have a no hitter going and probably nobody would know about it until they picked up a paper the next day and uh, read some box scores in Cincinnati or Chicago or whatever it might be yeah that's uh it's it's a whole different kind of uh atmosphere and you know the way things are today is it's a lot different like you said, with the social media and the MLB network and, and all of that right. kind of stuff. And, and, and you know, it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of unique that you said that 
uh, a lot of folks wouldn't know until they picked up the paper the next day. I think that's kind of, uh, you know, that to put that into kind of perspective, that's, you know, we'll never experience anything like that again. No, that's right. You know, I told Jim Turner, our pitching coach, he always uh, told us, you know, our pitchers, you know, and I, 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 I pitched under Jim Turner at Nashville, and then he later on became a pitching coach there at, at uh, Cincinnati. But he said, when you're going to start, like I was a starter my entire career outside of maybe the first year I, I was a pitch, I pitched, I started and I pitched out of the bullpen a little bit as a long man relief. But as he always told me, he said, the best uh, thing you can do is spend, in, in those days, I think he said 20 cents, and you buy, in between starts, you buy a, a newspaper and you follow the box scores of the team you're going to pitch against the next time out. And you go over the hitters and you can see who's getting one hit, two hits, and you, you can tell. So when you pitch against somebody that you know who's hot and who's not, now you don't have to do that. All I have to do is watch uh, ESPN and they tell you who's hot and who's not. And, and you know, you don't, you don't have to go through all that, that stuff. But I did that for my, my, pretty much my whole career. Is uh, I bought newspapers. We go on the road. We go on, and I was going to pitch two games on the road. I would start buying and looking, uh, you know, like if we were going to play Pittsburgh, the second team in, I would start buying and looking at the Pittsburgh uh, box scores to see who was getting the hits, who wasn't. Yeah, nowadays they have the uh, they have the advanced scouting video. They have every pitch on video and film, and you know you didn't have the luxury of having that kind of stuff back then. No, but you really had to. Uh, you know, you have to learn. I'm, I might have been able to get a certain hitter out a certain way, and Bob Perky could not get that hitter out the same way I threw because he was a different type of pitcher. So it's more of a trial and error method that, you know, if guys like balls inside or they like the ball outside. Um, but it's pretty much a rule that even today to simplify things down, uh, most right-handed hitters like the ball up and out over the plate. And they like to look for the ball inside so they can jerk the ball down the line up. And uh, most left-handed hitters like the ball down and sort of in. And so, you you know, I try to just stay out of those zones, you know. If, and uh, there are some exceptions. There are some – they were uh, – Don Clendenin was a low-ball, fastball-hitting uh, first baseman for the Mets. And, uh, you know, you find, that, you find that out so you don't pitch up. You don't – if you don't know, like – Perky could get guys out where I couldn't get them out that way, and uh, vice versa. So, a pitcher, each pitcher has to learn how to, you know, and that takes through experience. You get the chance to pitch against them a few times, and you see how they're working against you, and how you know. But basically, if you just try to keep the ball down on right-handers, and you can pitch the ball down on left-handers if you pitch the ball away, and you can go up up and in or up and away on left-handers you stay you know above the belt right because they they like that ball down and in so they can golf it out and you know get some wood on it so that's pretty much uh that's pretty much uh true in you know today's uh hitters did you have any um on the days that you pitched did you have any routines or anything that you did i i i i, I think you kind of touched on it earlier about how you know you were kind of left alone uh, were you just kind of like a different guy on the day that you pitched where you didn't want to be bothered and wanted to focus on the task at hand? Yeah, absolutely. I was okay at home, but 
once I left, I lived up in Mount Airy, and once I left uh, uh, the house up there, and I was pitching that day, I would I would get in the clubhouse, and uh, I would pretty much isolate. I, uh, you know, I mean, if somebody came up and asked me a question or did something, I mean, I I would, but I wasn't around. Uh, some of the guys play cards, uh, you know, uh, idle time and stuff, or joke around a little bit, and. Uh, I wasn't into that kind of a mode, and they know it, you know. The, the, and I knew it when other starters were the same way, um, you know. So it's all a, it's all an individual type thing. But uh, you know, you uh, you get psyched up to pitch, and uh, you're you're one day, and and if you, you know you try to have a good day at the office, and if you don't have a good day at the office, you got to wait four more days or five more days to get out there and go at it again. So. I, uh, I, you know, pretty much uh, was by myself. Yeah, as you know, we talk about some of the changes in the game these days, but I think that's one that has remained, you know, consistent throughout the years is the the pitcher, you know, kind of, you know, remaining in his zone and doesn't want to be bothered. I know the media, there's a uh, protocol for the media not to talk to the pitcher the day that he pitches. Um, so, yeah, he's, uh, I think some of those things uh, have remained the same as the years have gone by. Right, right. You know, something but, uh, about about you, Jim, that I didn't really uh, realize until I looked up today, you're the only player to appear on both the Reds' 1961 and 1970 World Series teams. Well, that's that's uh, that's about halfway right. Uh, I was on a 61 team. Yeah, I was 21 years old, and I, was, I think I was the youngest pitcher to pitch in the World Series. I didn't go, do very good. I came in relief of... Uh, Joy Day, Joy Jay, and uh, I just uh, he gave up about five or six runs, and I came in and put some more fire gas on the fire. But uh, you know, I got to pitch in the World Series, and that's one of my goals. Is you know, when I started out, that I would would like to pitch in the World Series. In 1969, I was uh, uh, about in the middle of the season. That was I started off. I was like three wins and no losses, plus a no hitter in that deal, and then. Uh, about I don't know maybe mid season I started having problems with my left heel, mm-hmm. the back of the heel where the shoe. In those days we didn't have those Adidas shoes or something. We had the hard kangaroo leather type shoes that you mm-hmm. had to wear real tight on your feet, uh, you know, half size smaller, and it would rub around the back part of my heel and uh, and it bothered me. It bothered me when I was running and when I touched it or when that thing, you know. Uh, the back of the shoe would rub across it. It would it would hurt, and I didn't know what was going on. And uh, so I I told the, the the trainer about it, and uh, uh, he he didn't seem to say anything. So finally I said, well you better tell Housen. I said I, this thing's not getting any better. And I said so anyway. Uh, I went up to Housen's office and uh, I told him. In the meantime, they X-rayed it. They had somebody look at it. Uh, Dr. Blue, he was our team doctor. He was a surgeon. And uh, so they couldn't see anything in this and that. So Housen uh, called me up. I didn't call me in. I didn't make an appointment with him. So he sits me down and he says, Well, we had you checked out. And he says, We don't, there's nothing that shows bad on the x rays or nothing. And he says, The only thing I can think about, he says, You don't have any pain tolerance. That's what he told me. Hmm. He says, You don't have any pain tolerance. He says, you don't know how you don't know how to take pain. And I said, "What are you talking about?" 
he says, well, Bob Gibson, see, Housen came from St. Louis when, in 67. And so he says, well, he brings up Gibson's name. He says, well, Bob Gibson's got pain tolerance. He goes out, he's hurting, and he said, he pitches. He pitches through it. I says, I do I do the same thing. I says, there, most of the times I'm stiff and sore it's from the time before. And after, if I get by the first inning or second inning, I loosen up and I can go ahead and pitch. I said, I don't have any problem there. This is my heel, and it bothers me to to run, and it bothers me when I pitch, when I land on it. Well, he says, he says you got to bite the bullet. He says, you got to pitch. So anyway, I I really resented the fact that he talked to me that way, and mm-hmm. uh, so I left. So I built a pad up in my shoe. I had a, a like a, a sponge, a leather sponge deal, and I wrapped it with uh, tape. So where my left shoe, was, my heel would stick up almost, my shoe, my foot would come out of my shoe almost, but it would just hang on very little bit away from that spot. Mm-hmm. But still, when I ran, it still bothered me. So I finished out that year, and I never said anything. I kept pitching, and I had some arm problems, and um, I, I missed a few starts, I'm sure. But the next uh, year, I, I go to spring training, and uh, uh, they wanted to cut me. You know, I was 12-5, and five and I had the lowest earn run average on the team, but I had, my wins had fallen off. And uh, I was 12-5, and five and they wanted to cut me $2,000. I said, I said, I'm not going to take a cut. So I was holding out. I had my family down in Tampa, and uh, I would go over to the ballpark and I talked to Housen. And uh, so he says, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to give you the money. You know, we're we're going to, we want you to sign for a two thousand dollar cut. You either sign for that, you're not going to play. So I went back to the house and uh, where I was staying with my family, and uh, talked it over with my wife and uh, I called my dad and I told him what was the deal and he said well um, he said well he says you do what you feel that you need to do he says I'm pretty sure that they probably will come up with your same salary as you made the last year that's what my dad said and he said if you wanted to hold out you can hold out so I said okay I'll hold out for another week so anyway I went back I didn't show up at the ballpark, and I didn't hear anything. And anyway, I got a call. I got a call from Marvin uh, Miller, and he was a, a union guy from Pittsburgh. And uh, he was a guy that got things going. He got meal money raised up right away. We didn't know. You know, these, these owners were telling us certain things, and we had no way to bargain on anything. We had no agents, nothing, nothing of that stuff. But anyway, Marvin Miller calls me, and he says, uh, you're holding out. He says, do you think you're going to sign? I says, you know, Marvin, I said, I don't know. I said, I, they want to cut me to only $2,000, but I said, I was 12 and 5. I had the lowest earn run average on all of the, on the ball club that year. And uh, I said, I don't, you know, I would play for the same salary. So I was talking about a $2,000 swing there. And, uh, you know, that was a lot of money in those days. I mm-hmm. mean, 70, I don't know what compared to today what it was. So he says, he said, if you want to sit it out, he says, Kurt Flood is, we're going to try to challenge the reserve clause. And uh, so where you don't have to be bound down to one player, one team, mm-hmm. and that you go to another team. And he says, I can't guarantee you that you'll be blackballed out of baseball or whatever, but he said, if you're willing to, you know, do that, 
you know, uh, I'd, we'd, we'd have somebody who would represent you and uh, go from there. And I said, well, let me think about it. So I hung up, and uh, I called him back about five days later. I hadn't heard anything from Housen or anything. And I told him, I said, Marvin, I said, uh, I don't have enough guts. That's exactly what I told him uh, to go with that deal. I said, I, I just don't have enough guts to, to do that. And I said, um, that would be my answer, so I'm not going to undo that. And I'm going to go back, and I'm going to sign. So he thanked me, and, you know, that was it. And I went back back to Tampa and went into Housen's office and I said, okay, I'll sign. So I signed for a $2,000 cut. And hmm. when I started running in the outfield right away, my heels started bothering me. I never said a word to anybody. And I just put the uh, thing in my uh, heel to raise it up out of my shoe. And uh, the first game of the season, I uh, pitched against the Dodgers. It was about the third game of the season at Crosley Field. He came up to hit, and I hit a ball up the middle. You know, I thought it was you know going to be a base hit. Yeah. I took one step, hard step out of the uh, dugout. I mean, out of the batter's box, and I heard the thing pop. Went off in my mm. head. Uh, Tom Howard, the catcher, he heard it pop. The umpire heard it pop, and uh, that was it. Ted Kozuski walked down. He was the first base coach, and he said, "What happened?" I said, "It's not good." I said, "I did something to my back of my heel." And I thought when I swung, the bat went up in the air and came back down and hit me in the back of the heel. But when I put my shoe foot down on the ground, I didn't have his like, you know, like a horse with a broken leg, just sort mm -hmm. of wiggle. So that was it. That was it for me. The next day I was under the knife, and I, that was the rest. I never won another game after that. And I was, you might have said I was in the middle of my career. Right, and that's, uh, you know, that's the tragedy of all of it for a guy that, through so many innings and through so many pitches and was at the top of his game at, you know, 30 years old, it, it was, it wasn't an arm issue. It was a, it was an Achilles and, you know, that's uh, the game really lost out by having you go down like that. However, you, th that 61 and those, and that 62, that, excuse me, that 61 and 62 team, uh, th those were pretty good teams. Yeah. In fact, uh, from 1961 to 65 or 66, maybe even 67, you know, we contended it was a whole different thing. There was like 10 teams or eight teams when the, each league when I started. So they didn't have any playoffs until 70, and then we they had, it was the first year that they had playoffs that we were involved. And uh, where you had the playoff, we played Pittsburgh and beat them to get to the World Series. But uh, it was just whoever won the division. And uh, 64, we had a one-game lead going in the last week of the season, and we lost every game the last, uh, I think, five games that last week and uh, finished in second place. So, but, you know, we were pretty much a contender in a lot of those years, so it, it kept kept our team all together, and, you know, uh, we came close, but it's like anything else, you know. you got to have, you know, you never know when you start the year who gets hurt, and what kind of guys you got replacing them, uh, if they can do the job, and they do do the job. Uh, when you're deal, dealing with the human element like that, uh, it, it's a tough it's a tough call. You know, you leave, you know, when the Reds left spring training this year, uh, I really thought in my mind that, you know, that uh, Price and his, and his coaches were going to really have a uh, – 
bang up year and uh, contend, and with a little luck they would win, you know. And uh, all of a sudden you start guys start falling out, and uh, and how they ended up with all those rookie pitchers and stuff at the last month of the year is uh, you know is something. But you really know you don't really know you know what can happen. You know up here in San Francisco that. Hunter Pence, he got hurt two times during the year and was out. He was a big plug in their uh, offense and defense also. And uh, there were other guys that got banged up in the first baseman belt. He got, you know, they missed time. But they get guys to come in and they do the job while they're in. And, uh, you know, they came up short this year, but they they, they uh, challenged, you know. But uh, it's tough when you, uh, you know, Walt Jockety and his uh, – you know, uh, Bob Castellini and, and Price uh, to evaluate and to see who's going to stay and who's not going to stay. Uh, uh, it, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of luck involved. Sure does. You mentioned Brian Price. I don't know if you know this or not, Jim, but Brian has a picture of you, a framed picture up in his office in Great American Ballpark. No, I didn't know that. I think, uh, what was he, throwing darts at it or something <laughs> that he lost? <laughs> I don't know about that, but all I know is, uh, you know, he as a former pitching coach, Brian, you know, appreciates some of the guys that uh, in Reds history, some of the the, the great pitchers, and uh, he's he's honored them. I kind of, I, I guess, with uh, with uh, with framed photos in his office, and you happen to be up there. I'll be darned. Well, Brian Price is a uh, he's a favorite of mine, and uh, I. I uh, if he gets any kind of breaks at all, I mean, he, he he's going to have some real success as a manager. I mean, he's he's a sharp business, uh, a sharp business uh, orientated uh, baseball uh, guy, and uh, you know, to go through what he went through the first year. In fact, I told him, I said, hey, we're at Reds Fest, and I we were going up the stairs there to go to get on the stage, and I says, hey Brian, I said, and he was there with Jay Bell. And I said, I want to tell you something. You guys made it through this year. I says, believe me. And as I'm telling you, you'll never, ever have another year like that. It's all going to be up from where you were last year. So he thanked me for that, and I couldn't believe it. They had a worse year, you know, <laughs> I mean, the way the injuries and stuff. So maybe I better just keep my mouth shut, you know, and go on about my business. <laughs> maybe he was throwing darts at your picture down there. What's that? Maybe yeah, he was. Maybe he yeah. was throwing darts at your picture. He was. He had it up there in the men's room or something, throwing uh, <laughs> darts at it or something. Well, if if anyone knows about managers, that would certainly be you. You you played for the great Fred Hutchinson and also Sparky Anderson. What can you tell me about those two individuals that uh, that maybe you've learned something from or something uh, specific that you admired about those guys? Well, I think. Uh, Hutch was unique in the fact that he was a tough, uh, tough, uh, very tough uh, person. Uh, if if you didn't hustle, if you didn't run balls out, if you didn't uh, fundamentals, you kept missing cutoff, man. It, I mean, you're going to get the riot act read after you. And he was tough and gruff that way. And he could chew you out. He'd chew every, we'd call a meeting and he would chew everybody out chew the pitchers out to giving up too much or two more runs. We get, you know, and all this kind of stuff, and you got to do this and you got to do that. And he'd call you in, in in your office, and, you know, he may read you the riot act, 
But once you left his office or you left the, the, the clubhouse and went out to the ballpark or went out to the field, never held a resentment against anybody. And that's that's pretty tough. I mean, that's you know that's a pretty tough thing and a unique thing that a manager, you know, can talk to somebody, and maybe they don't get along with them, and he can read them out and this and that. But after it's all done, you know, he's going to treat you just like a uh, a normal person. And uh, that was one thing about him. Now, Sparky, I you know I ruptured my Achilles tendon early in the year, his first year, and uh, he was sort of a whole different. Uh, uh, type of a manager just the first year, you know, he started the uh, first year he managed, they won you know, they won and went to the World Series and got beat by in Baltimore, or by Baltimore, but uh, you know, the success he had it was Cincinnati, then he went to Detroit and uh, the kind of pitcher I know he was uh, one of the guys that uh, uh, they call him Captain Hook he, he would take pitchers out before they wanted to come out, you know that may be a little bit different today. It's, you know, you go out and ask a pitcher today, you say, well, how do you feel? They want to know. They don't tell you how they feel. They tell you how many pitch. Ask them, how many pitches do I have? You know, so it, uh, so, but he, you know, I didn't know much about Sparky Anderson uh, than what he did and the success he did. But the bottom line, Jamie, is that I think that if you don't have the horses, you're not going to pull the coach. Sure. And if you got the horse you're going to pull the coach. And when the Reds left spring training, they had the horses to pull the coach. And, and you know, just uh, bad things kept on happening health-wise to a lot of those guys played. Jim, were you ever ordered to plunk a batter? Ordered to what? Plunk a batter. Get a batter? Yeah. No, I didn't need it. I didn't need to be ordered. You, you knew that to... nobody had to tell me. You, know, you knew when to do it and I, when not to do it. Well, in our day, we sort of monitored our own deal, the players, the teams did. And, uh, you know, uh, Frank Robinson would be on the plate, and uh, he got hit a lot. He'd stand up close to the plate. Yeah, he got hit a lot. Guys tried to pitch inside on him and get hit. And, uh, you know, just a little story. Uh, I was pitching in Crosley Field against the Dodgers, and Drysdale was pitching. And uh, Drysdale uh, threw one inside and hit hit Frank. And so he goes to first base. And uh, so when he came back in, I just walked down to where Frank was sitting. I just walked down and I said, "Hey, Robbie," I said, "Who do you want me to get?" You know, I asked him. And. Uh, he said, I don't really think he was throwing at me. You know, he was honest. And I says, okay. I said, I'll put a stop to it anyway. So anyway, when I came up to hit, I walked around their catcher, Roseboro, and uh, stepped, you know, I said, before I stepped into the uh, batter's box, I told Roseboro, I said, if that Drysdale hits one more of our guys any time during this ball game, I'm going to make sure that I hit you with my best, best fastball, and I'm going to try to throw it back through you and his eyes got as big as saucers but you know we didn't have any more problem that day and uh you know some of the people that are listening probably don't realize that you know at the time you were you were ticking it up there at about 99 so i i know john roseboro probably wasn't you know too keen on the idea of having one go right through him well 
nobody, you know, you just you, you just go about it. Nobody knew in a sitting in the stands that what was said or anything like that. And, and uh, you know, we had no problem, you know, no problem. But, uh, you know, nowadays, as soon as, you know, somebody gets hurt, then if somebody's going to retaliate, you know, it's right away the umpire's stepping in there and he's going to, you know, next thing, the next ball's close, he's throwing you out of the game and that kind of thing. So, and they really. It's, They've really kind of made it a, uh, you know, with the with the warnings to both benches, you know, it, it almost kind of handcuffs the, uh, the the relievers that come in, you know, after the the fracas, if you will, and you know they can't pitch inside, or if they do, they get thrown out of the game, and then that kind of, you know, puts the managers at a disadvantage. So I'm not sure. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I tell you what, I, you have to pitch inside. I don't care who you are. And when you start pitching inside, uh, I didn't. I didn't make. I didn't make a living pitching inside. But when I pitched inside, I wanted to make sure that the guy thought I was going to pitch inside. So I would always throw the ball inside, at least six inches or to a foot inside. And he would think that you know, and not trying to hit him or anything, just try to pitch the ball inside, get him off the plate. And I, I would do that, but I would never try to pitch a strike on the inside corner because that was my ball sort of tailed back and the left-hander I, I had early in my career I found out if I try to make an inside strike I would start the ball inside a little bit and the ball would come back over the plate and then the left-hander he would get a good piece of the uh, that part of the bat on the ball so and then when I threw the ball inside further on the left-hand hitter my ball would come back and get to the inside corner the umpire, nine times out of ten, would call that a ball. So I, either way, I was not going to not going to get my uh, call. So I decided that I want to make sure that they think I'm pitching them inside. So I always, if I got one and one or, or or two strikes in a ball, and if I wanted to go inside, I would go inside bad and and get them off the plate. And they were in the hitter's mind, they think he's trying to come inside. But if you just go keep throwing outside and outside and outside. That guy's going to start leaning over the plate and, you know, getting some uh, fat part of the bat on the ball. It wasn't uncommon for you back in your playing days to have to face guys like Gibson and Drysdale and Marischal and Koufax. And, you know, it was a it was a pretty fantastic era for pitching back then. And, you know, yourself included. What was it like pitching against those guys? Well, <clears throat> number one, uh, you know, if you got into a game with them and you're pitching, which I pitched a lot, you know, you used to have number one would pitch against number one. I mean, that's that's the way they would uh, line you up. You know, you your best against their best for one game. And uh, so <clears throat> I had the opportunity to pitch against a, a lot of times against Gibson and Koufax and Marichal and, and uh, some of the other top pitchers in the league. But uh, the thing of it is when you, you know, Major League Baseball, it really, you know, you know that when you're pitching against Koufax that you might be able to give up one run and you might be able to come out okay. And if you give up two runs, you might be questionable. If you give up three runs, uh, your team's not going to win that game. <laughs> or well, That's pretty much the way it went, you know. So, But I, every game that I pitched, you know, I tried to I, – I went out there on the, on the idea – in the back of my mind that I was going to go one pitch at a time. And I did this from pretty much till 
when I started. That was the thing that I felt that I could pitch a no hitter every time I went out there, and mm-hmm. that's the way I, I pitched the game. Whether it was Gibson or or somebody else, a, a, a pitcher that was pitching, maybe a pitcher they just brought up from somewhere, and uh, I tried to pitch a uh, perfect game every time I went out. And if somebody got a hit on me, then I was going to pitch a one hit shutout. Next hitter, work on him. And if he happened to get a hit, then I was going to pitch a two-hit shutout. And if I give up a run, I was going to put, give up, you know, I was going to finish. I was going to stay in a three-hit, one-run ball game. You know, that's I just sort of stayed one pitch and at, at, at how the moment was and still had a goal of not let, not giving up a hit after that point or, or a run. Who were some of the tougher batters that you had problems with? Uh <clears throat> The guys, uh, I had two guys that hit with power uh, that were really, uh, you know, I got them out, but they were really tough outs for me. Was One was uh, Willie Stargell with the Pirates, the left-hand hitter. And the, the other one was Willie McCovey, the left-hand hitter for uh, San Francisco Giants. Uh, you know, I pitched against Hank Aaron for 10 years and Roberto Clemente and... Uh, Willie Mays for 10 years and I didn't really have too much problem with those guys I mean they got their hits and I think Aaron of all the home runs he hit off he hit five of them off me but I had you know you're going 24 times a year you're playing Milwaukee or or I'm pitching against him I don't know how many times and how many at bats he had against me and uh but uh McCovey and Stargell were tough outs. Now another guy that hit me pretty good that that I sort of I sort of played around with uh, was a guy named Rusty Staub. Hmm. And Rusty Staub was a uh, first baseman for the Houston Astros, and and he was a line drive type hitter, left hand hitter. And I could throw anything up there, and that guy would get two or three hits off me every game. I throw curves, fastballs, change up. My change up was mediocre anyway, but. He'd get hits. I could throw my glove up there, and he'd get a hit. So I told John Edwards one day, going to the ballpark, I said, you know what? I said, this stop. I said, he hits everything I throw up there. I said, I'm just going to tell him what's coming. And uh, so we started <laughs> the game, and stop came up. He was either the third hitter or the fifth hitter or something like that. I can't remember. But <clears throat> we're in Astrodome, and so I, I got the ball, and I, I walked out on, uh, off the mound onto the uh, AstroTurf, and uh, Staub was in the dealer, and I looked at him, and I said, fastball. I turned around, and I went to the mound. I wound up, threw him a fastball, and he took it for a strike. <laughs> then I got the ball, and I walked down off the mound, off the dirt, down onto the AstroTurf, and I'd say, curveball. And I'd throw him a curveball, and he'd just sit there and look at it. <laughs> and I did that the first time up. I told him whatever pitch was coming, and you know, after that, I don't think the guy got two hits off me the rest of, of his career, off me. <laughs> so, you know, whatever it did, that was a way. I wouldn't tell anybody how to do that, but that worked with his uh, the mental part or something. I don't know. It did something to him. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Now, you played with uh, guys like Pete Rose, Tony Perez, Lee May, one of my favorite guys, Veda, Frank Robinson, Joe Nuxall. What was it like playing with some of those guys that – I don't know if you knew at the time whether they were going to be Hall of Famers or not, but you know, you probably knew at the time that these guys were something special. Well, yeah, that's, uh, you know, uh, 
Pete came out in 63. That was my uh, third year there. And uh, so he started second base, and, uh, you know, he'd run the first, on a ball four, he'd run the first base as fast as he, uh, you know, he did on a hit. And, uh, you know, they started calling him a hot dog and all kinds of stuff, and they thought, you know, this is that. But then after a few years, that's just the way he played. And plus, he became a real good hitter. I mean, he worked on his hitting day in and day out. And, you know, he was one of those guys who could get hits. And he hit a home run once in a while. And uh, But he always gave it 110%, uh, whether it's stealing bases, running. You know, he did, the, he did the very, very best he could. And Perez, when he when he came up, he was a, he was a tough guy with guys on base, and right from the word go, he was your RBI guy, and uh, he was a good hitter. And uh, Lee May, Lee May was uh, uh, he had he had a lot of power, and uh, I remember going to L.A. and I tell us I say this to Lee every time I see him, you know, whether it's fantasy camp, I'd always bring it up to him. He always got a kick out of the story. And my folks used to come out there, you know, they go up to San Francisco and we played up there and we go down, they follow us down to LA and we play down there. So I told my dad, I says, man, we got this ball player, Lee May. I said, you ought to see this guy. This guy can really hit. And I built him up real good because he was, he was a good hitter. And I was watching him hit every day and uh, playing good, but he'd go out there and I'll be darned. He'd, he'd get up and, uh, They'd throw Drysdale, and uh, he'd go for four and strike out three times. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't think he'd get a hit, you know, for, for uh, three games. And uh, I tell my dad, I said, well, you know, that really wasn't me hitting up there. He says, well, I don't know. He said, he didn't look too good in there. And I tell Lee that, and he says, well, that's uh, that Drysdale slider. He said it was a hard pitch to hit, he says, and this and that. But, you know, hitters go into slumps, you know. And if you catch somebody that's in a slump, you do, well, that guy can't, what's he playing in this league? And then catch him three weeks later and he's hitting everything lights out, you know. So <laughs> that's, the, that's, the way it, that's the way it went. And uh, with Johnny Bench, when he came up, he sort of had the Hall of Fame written on him from the word go. And, uh, you know, Veda Pinson uh, was a guy that was really under the radar, uh, outfielder, center fielder. Great little hitter, could run like a deer, and uh, hit close to 300 every year. Hit hit 20 home runs, you know, and uh, was a good outfielder. And uh, nobody really heard too much about Veda Pinson, you know. He went, but he was a wonderful, wonderful uh, teammate and a great player to have on your team, you know. That's that's the kind of guy. So, and then Nuxall, you know, uh, Nuxall came and he had a. When I first got up there, he had a big temper, and they sent him. They sent him to Kansas City. That was in 1961, mm-hmm. and I came up in '60. And you know the fans in Cincinnati were actually booing him because he, he would. I mean, he really had a temper, terrible temper. <laughs> he went to Kansas City, and he pitched over there during that year. And that, that was the year that we won the pennant. <laughs> the next year, they they got got him back, and uh, he went down to San Diego and pitched the first couple months of the season. He learned to control his temper, and he learned a little bit more about pitching, and he came back up, and, uh, you know, the rest was history from Joe Nuxall. He he, uh, he was a great little pitcher there for about five years with us, and then he went from the pitcher's uh, mound right up into the uh, broadcaster's booth, and, you know, he, uh, I don't know how many years, 40-some years, I guess, was there. 
about so, Robinson? Frank Robinson was another guy you knew had Hall of Fame written on him. He uh, he was a hard nosed player too. You know, uh, you know the, the, those guys in those days. I mean, I never today. You see guys they hit fly balls or they think a ball's going to go out of the ballpark. They don't run. They watch it. You know, they watch it, and then all of a sudden, it goes off the the uh, fence, and they barely make it into into uh, second base. Whereas, if Frank Robinson hit a ball, and he knows all hitters know when they hit it good. Sometimes they don't know they hit it out, but it's they know it's going to be up against the wall or or close to being out. And Frank Robinson would take off, and he wouldn't look at anything. And if the guy came off the wall. Frank Robinson's not barely making it in a second. He's already standing up at third because he ran all the way. And uh, these these guys today, not all, but a lot of them, they just look there at the ball, and all of a sudden, it, I've seen them get held, hold to a single because they don't run. They think the ball's going out, and the wind holds it up or something. And you know, it's uh, and I I don't know if anybody says anything to them or not, but I guarantee in my day. They would definitely. Somebody would say if it wasn't a player, it was a manager, and usually it was a veteran player would take the person's side, like a rookie or somebody. Says, "Hey, we don't play that way here in this league. Mm-hmm. We go all out on everything." So, Jim, how was yeah. your uh, how was your relationship with the the Cincinnati media? Uh, I I didn't have any problem with uh, I didn't have any problem that way. I didn't have any problem with umpires. Um, but uh, the media we had, uh, Lou Smith was a, a writer for the uh, uh, Enquirer, and he was uh, he was like a ghost. You never saw him. <laughs> you know, I never even knew what Lou Smith looked like. And one day we were on a plane. I said, "Well, who's that guy sitting over there?" So oh, that's Lou Smith, really. <laughs> you know, because he would never come in after the game. He would listen to the game on the on the after the game, start of the game, and stuff of this and that. Mm-hmm. And that's where he got his quotes. You know, he got his quotes off there. And we had a guy writing for the Post Time Star, Earl Lawson, and uh, he was a nice guy. And uh, he would write, you know, he would write baseball. He get quotes from the guys. And what whenever it went on in the clubhouse, stayed in the clubhouse. You didn't have right. to worry one thing about him. The Dayton writers, uh, Ritter, Collette, Cy Burek, they were wonderful, wonderful guys. Uh, and then later was a guy named Jim Ferguson, yep. and he went on out to San Diego as a PR guy, and then I think he's worked in the major league office, I think, after that or something. I don't know. And so I didn't have any, I didn't have any problem. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I sort of have fun with him, really. I, I, I can tell you a story. That my locker at Crosley Field is when you, you had to go up a ramp and go up to the through the doors. And when you hit the doors to get into the clubhouse, you had to make a right. And on the right hand side, there was a manager's office there. And then you sort of had a bare left to get into the clubhouse area where all the lockers were. And my locker was right on the corner. It was the first one that the right you would see if somebody walked in, you would see my locker there. And uh, so anyway, I was I was having a rough go and and uh, and anyway, I pitched uh, a ball game and I got rocked around a little bit and uh, so I go to the ballpark the next day and then they got the newspapers in there. They have them in there. You guys can read them and stuff. So I look at the headlines in the sports page and it says, "Will 
the real Jim Maloney. Please stand up. Remember that uh, TV show? Uh, what was it? What's my line or something like? Did you ever? <laughs> Or was that before your time? A little bit before, but I'm familiar with that show, though. Okay. And it says, will the real Jim Maloney please stand up? So anyway, I got a sort of a chuckle out of that, you know, this and that. And uh, so anyway, I I don't know. I went out. I don't know if it's the next game or whatever it was, but we were in, we were in Crosley Field. And I went out and I pitched like a two-hit shutout and I struck out, you know, 10 or 11 guys or whatever it is. Had a good game. So I run in the clubhouse, and uh, I pull my chair out, had a wooden chair, and I take. Air, I told Bernie, the clubhouse guy, Bernie Stowe, mm-hmm. says, Bernie, I says, let me know when the writer, Ritter, Collette, and the writers, they all came up together, every one of them, they put them in the clubhouse. I says, let me know when they're coming up that ramp. So I, Bernie was looking around the corner, and he says, here they come. So I had all my clothes off. I didn't have anything on. <laughs> I stood up on the chair, buck naked. I stood up on the chair, and these riders all come around, and they come around the corner, and they, that was the first thing they saw, standing there with no clothes on, on a chair. And, and they looked, stopped in their tracks, and they said, what are you, what's going on? And I, and I never smiled or nothing. I just said with a dead face, I says, this is the way you told me to, will the real Jim Maloney stand up? So here I am. <laughs> no, that's a stupid thing. I mean, I don't know if I'd do that today or not, but I doubt it. But uh, I was a little bit, little bit uh, goofy in those days, I guess. You know, you tell a, a great story about Johnny Bench and a, uh, a certain um, uh, foreign substance on a ball. Would you care to talk about that a little bit? No, I, you know, I'd be glad to. Uh, Johnny Bench came up... Uh, 1969, I think it was, and it, at that particular point, I was working on a, uh, uh, a di- another pitch. You know, I was probably losing a little off my fastball, and and I never threw a slider. I just threw first fastball, curve, and change. Now these guys today, they got sinkers, cuts, fastball, this seams, against the seams, split fingers. I mean, they got all these kind of things, and they can't throw half of them for strikes. So I don't know what 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 good does it do, you know. But anyway. In those days, so anyway, I was trying to come up with another pitch. I didn't want to throw a slider because I felt it took something away from my curve, and I had a good 12 to 6, you know, off-the-table curve. So I was told, you know, I don't know if that's a myth or not, that when guys threw, start throwing sliders, it, they lose their good curveball. So I didn't want to get into that deal. So anyway, there was some guys throwing some spitballs in those days, and the umpires sort of looked the other way a little bit. Nobody said anything except the hitters. The hitters were complaining a little bit. So I started, uh, when I was home that winter, I, uh, my wife's OBGYN delivered um, uh, our first daughter, and so he, was, he, he became a good friend of ours. Uh, he was a Yankee friend, he and his family. And uh, so he told me, we started talking about spitballs, and he says, you know, he says, I got this KY jelly. <laughs> and uh, he says, he says, you probably could, you know, get a good spitball with that, you know, if you want to try it. And I says, well, okay. I said, well, what is it, you know, it's clear. And you put it on, and the more you sweat, the slicker it got. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know. So anyway, I took a bunch of tubes to spring training, and I started fooling around with it. Well, I ended up, I had a good one. I mean, I had one that was unhittable. And it was also, if you didn't know it was coming, like a catcher doesn't know if it's coming, mm-hmm. it's, it was uncatchable. 
I mean, it it was that wild of a pitch. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a tough pitch. And uh, so anyway, I was fooling around with this pitch, and Bench come up there. So we uh, he uh, uh, we, the first game of the season, or second or third game of the season, I can't remember. Bench is going to catch, and so he says. I said, we're going over the hitters before the game. And I said, Johnny, I said, uh, I got this uh, this pitch, this new pitch, this KY Jelly Ball. I says, you'll need a sign for it. I said, well, you know, I'll have to let give you a sign to let you know that I have it on the ball and it's going to come on the next pitch. And he <laughs> says, look at me, and he says, no, he says, uh, you throw it, I'll catch it. You know, he, he was really cocky when he was 19. So he's probably, you know, still, he's still going that route, but uh, <laughs> he was really cocky in those days. And he tells me to throw it, I'll catch it. And I'm thinking, okay. So I didn't say anything. We started the game. And I had it on the back of my neck. And uh, I'd go up and adjust my hat. And I only threw it when I needed it. I didn't throw it every pitch like Gaylord Perry had that grease ball. He pretty much. <laughs> do it every pitch you know he had to back clean mm-hmm. and uh so anyway uh we'd go along and i got two quick outs and then i think well okay he calls for a fastball I, you know, so i had it loaded call for a fastball and he doesn't know it's coming so i throw it and he, he didn't even get a glove it went up there exploded and hit him right in the toe <laughs> And that ball kicked off, and he went down on one knee, and I heard him yell a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, so I went up, walked halfway up there, and the umpire threw me a ball. And so I'm, he, I'm looking at him; he doesn't do anything. So anyway, I turn around, and go back to the mound, and get the guy out. Next inning, same thing. I get two outs because I don't want to throw with a guy on third base. I mean, he's not even going to catch it. You know, right. there's no way. And. Uh, so I got two quick outs, nobody on. So same thing happened. I loaded it up. He calls for a fast. I call for a curve. So I shook him off, and he comes with a fastball because I got it loaded. And so I wind up, I throw, and I let it go a little bit high. Started out maybe uh, shoulder high on the hitter, and then he come out of his crotch a little bit, come up with his glove, and the ball dropped so fast, so quick, so hard, it came down, and he never got a glove on it. Hit him right in the cup and broke his cup in half. <laughs> and. Uh, He's on he's on all fours, and he rolls over on the home plate right across the field there. So I walk up there, and he's moaning and groaning and making all kinds of noises. And the umpire, I mean, the trainer comes out, and the trainer's lifting up on his belt. You know how when guys got their wind knocked out of them, they mm-hmm. on their belt. He's doing that. Finally, two or three minutes go by. He gets up to one knee and this and that. So I got another ball from the umpire. <laughs> I walk back out to the mound. And I turn around, and there's Benched right behind me. And he's about two feet standing there looking at me. He's got his uh, mask up on his helmet. And he looks at me, and he says, I think I need a sign for that pitch. <laughs> so maybe I taught him a little humility that day. You know, I don't know. <laughs> That's fantastic. He tells that story, too, you know, when he could ask him about that. He, he tells it. He's not, he's not embarrassed to tell it, I guess. <laughs> Well, Jim, it's been a pleasure. Uh, you know, I, I've taken up a lot of your time over an hour today, and, you know, I just want to let you know how much I really appreciate you coming on, and uh, especially to your wife as well for arranging this. But, uh, you know, I could talk to you probably for all day, uh, once a week if I could, and, you know, I would love to have you back on the on the podcast if you'd like. <laughs> 
Well, hey, thanks, Jamie. I appreciate it. And uh, you're still doing your uh, Better on Red, right? Yeah, you got that right. Yep, yep. Well, we, we uh, I always say when I go into the website, I always go in there and I check you out. You don't know I'm checking you out, but I do <laughs> check you out. So keep up the good work and uh, keep on doing what you're doing. Well, I appreciate it, Jim. Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, tell Lynn I said hello. Okay, thanks, Jimmy. Bye-bye. Big thanks to Jim Maloney for joining us from his Northern California home. I wanted to get Jim on the show because as you heard, he has so many great stories and is such a valuable resource for baseball information and insight. Not only that, but Jim has been so friendly and kind to me over the years. He's one of those guys to whom you only need to tell your name once because he'll always remember you no matter who you are. I always think about what kind of career Jim Maloney could have had had he remained healthy. And of all the injuries to sideline a pitcher, it wasn't an arm or elbow issue. It was a ruptured Achilles, of all things, that cut his career short. Can you imagine that big red machine with a still-in-his-prime Jim Maloney in the rotation? I hope you'll join us next week as we welcome to the show two-time Gold Club second baseman Pokey Reese. The music you heard on the podcast this week was courtesy of 11th Day Dream and their record Works for Tomorrow, which is available now on iTunes. Thank yous go out this week to Jim and Lynn Maloney, the Cincinnati Reds, and Lisa Braun. And a special thanks to our talented technical director, Nick Prince, without whom this podcast wouldn't exist. That's all from BOR headquarters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news. Oh,